Hey everybody, this is Andrew. We're back with Jetlag and this is episode two of season two. And last time we kind of dove into uh, the marketing aspect of shows and booking and then the stage productions and what's happened during this pandemic with all of these shows being booked and planned and then getting canceled and needing to be rescheduled. And this time we're gonna dive into the actual venues themselves. Um, I know that I had a bunch of tickets to go see shows this year that are now all canceled and rescheduled. And, you know, Larry had plenty on his list. Um, and ranging in all sorts of sizes, you know, I, I'm a metal and hardcore dork. And so I'm always at a lot of small venues. All of those shows got canceled and they got pushed out uh, a few months. In fact, I'm still getting emails about when they're being rescheduled. And then the largest show I had tickets for was another metal show, but it was furnace fest in uh in alabama in september and they finally just gave in and said hey guys we have to reschedule this so it got pushed from september all the way to to may of next year so it's interesting because some companies are offering full refunds these guys are offering refunds only for a month um so there's a lot of different details to what the venues have to do and what the ticketing organizations have to do uh, for these shows. And we're going to dive into that a little bit today. Um, I know Larry had tickets for even bigger shows, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I was going to be traveling to the Gorge today to see um, Brandy Carlisle and had Rage Against the Machine and Run the Jewels tickets for next month, which was going to be so good. Um Especially with the uh, RDJ4 record just coming out. But um, yeah, it's... Um, look, with everything going on in the world, these are first world problems by very definition. However, um, what has to be kept in mind is that the live music touring economy supports so many jobs and billions of dollars in revenue. And this has just been wiped from the sector. And... Um, our guest today is going to be talking to us about that as well as his work uh, from a marketing perspective as well. You know, how has coronavirus changed the way that bands speak to their fans now that they can't go into physical venues? Because I think we all have to keep in mind that even when restrictions are pulled back in certain places, that doesn't mean shows can happen because... People still can't, there's no freedom of movement. People still can't get around. So, uh, and that's what this season of jet lag is all about. Yeah. So let's, let's uh, introduce our third square on the screen here. We got Cody McKinney. He's the partner and co-founder of a music marketing agency called Marauder. And uh, they do all sorts of things in that space. And I will let him dive into that, but they're also, uh, they also play a large role in Neva, which stands for the National Independent Venue Association. So the venues that aren't necessarily owned by the huge big boys, you know, the uh, golden voices and live nations of the world. And so, um, you know, big companies like that might be able to withstand what's going on, but the smaller guys might not. So we're gonna talk about what that means and what the differences between all the venues are and stuff. So um, Cody, welcome to Jetlag. 
glad to have you. Great. Thanks for having me, Andrew, and, and thanks for having me, Larry, as well. Um, Larry actually had the, uh, the privilege of being at the last show that I was at before everything started shutting down, which is we were at the opening night of the New Colossus, which is a, a festival for emerging artists here in New York. And a lot of the artists that, that come to play that in March every year are artists who are on their way to South by Southwest and kind of looking for a good stopover show. So we were at the opening night of that, and I was watching, I distinctly remember who it was, I was watching Beverly Kills, who are an amazing, like kind of gothy post-punk band from Sweden. And right as I'm like the second or third song in, for the record, not worked with them, no affiliation. And right as I got into like the second or third song, I started realizing I feel uncomfortable asking for a drink for the bar. I feel uncomfortable being near people around me. And I also feel kind of hot and sick and weird. And it turned out that I had like some acute laryngitis or something. So I got myself into a car, got out of there. That was on March 11th of this, you know, the, you know, right at the beginning of all this, you know, at the time San Francisco had already gone into full quarantine mode. Um, some other U.S. cities had started doing the same. New York had not done that yet. New York was starting to limit capacity in venues, but they were not going to that degree. I, and, you know, they started doing half capacity at venues, that sort of thing. And I went and got in a car, went home. And, you know, two days later, I found out that a different event that I had been at the previous Sunday had had someone who tested positive for coronavirus. And I said, okay, well, I have to self-quarantine on the off chance that I have it. At the time, I did not. I got it later. That's another segue for later on in the show. Oh. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I was in this situation of, okay, well, I guess we're all locked in at home. And, you know, thankfully, Marauder was in a pretty good position as a company because, you know, we, you know, relatively speaking, because we not only work with, you know, artists and organizations from all over the world on their U.S. development, but, you know, also we had set the company up to operate, you know, fully remotely and not have to be tied to a physical office space if we were traveling or, you know, at a conference somewhere around the world and talking to international artists or whatever it was. So, you know, all that we had to do was we closed the office the next day and, you know, everybody shut the laptops and they went home and we've been working from home ever since then. We were hoping it would be for like three weeks. We didn't think it was going to be till now. And, you know, now we're just to the point, you know, on, on Monday, you know, June 8th, which is going to be just a couple of days after we tape this, um, that's when they're going to start lifting, you know, the stay-at-home orders here in New York, the pause order, as the government's referring to it. And once we get to that point, they're going to start letting manufacturing and construction open again. And then, you know, the non-essential businesses, you know, the, the marketing services companies and the financial companies and that sort of thing, they're going to be the next phase. So at probably some point, like, June 15th to 22nd, maybe we'll be back in there, but we've already told our employees, look, like, you know, we don't want anybody going back in until they feel completely comfortable doing so. And I'm not going to be the first one back in there because I don't want to help people feel comfortable who feel uncomfortable based on science. You know, we want to make sure that, that everybody feels like they can be there. And it's a really, really strange time in our business. Right. So Let's backpedal a little bit. So for most companies, or if you look at the economy or whatnot, the last three or four years were actually pretty decent. Year on year, things looked up. 
and busier and stock prices were going up and people were feeling, you know, pretty decent. So, you know, 2019 was likely a busy year for you guys. And what, what did that look like prior to going into this? And after that, then we'll jump into where we're at now for the rest of 2020. So. Yeah. So, so, you know, without, without going into, you know, crazy specifics, I can tell you right now, the very beginning of this year, the time leading into South by Southwest was probably the best that, that we've done as a company in a long time. You know, we've hmm. been, we're actually celebrating our fifth anniversary as a company about two weeks from today, which we're really excited about. You know, we were having a really, really great, you know, time coming into everything. And then suddenly everything hits the skids. We go, oh, this is going to be really weird for everyone. And we immediately thought to ourselves, okay, well, we're in, we can weather the storm somewhat, at least in the short term. What's going to happen to everybody else? Because, you know, venues and artists in the U.S. have such a intensely reciprocal relationship, I think even over and above other, you know, other artists and venues from other territories, because, you know, we don't have government funding for, um, you know, U.S. artists who you know, have, you know, a cool new indie rock record or, a, you know, a cool hip hop record or something like that. There's no, you know, we have you know, export, you know, services here, but we don't have export funding here. And essentially, if you can't play shows in the States and, you know, you don't have other immediate strong revenue streams coming in, like pre-existing royalties or sync licensing that, that really worked in your favor or anything like that, you suddenly have no idea how you're keeping the lights on. And we saw a lot of people who were kind of at the point past being hobbyists about being professional musicians, but also not quite to the Ariana Grande, uh, you know, Taylor Swift level of, you know, of pop stardom. Some of these artists who were career musicians suddenly were going, oh God, I don't know how I'm paying rent in April, let alone May. And that was because the venues suddenly just couldn't operate in the country. And so that, and so that started a, a big chain reaction. You know, we, we've been working with independent venue week here in the U S and we produce that event entirely. It's, it's, you know, started in the UK and we work with the UK on having the, the brand here and that, and that had, you know, close to 200 venues that were already part of it for this third edition that we were going to do. And we started hearing about all of them having kind of the same issues. And so that caused a whole chain reaction of events that led to, um, you know, the, you know, NEVA being created, which is the National Independent Venue Association. And that's where we started hearing the raw data on what was happening. There is an internal study done, and this is over a thousand venues in all 50 states and DC. I mean, this is you know, just about every venue that is a independently or locally owned operation is part of NEVA right now. And we started doing some, you know, internal studies. And, you know, I've been I, I'm sort of adjacent to that process because I'm less than the nitty gritty of it than you know my my partner Moose is, who's the executive director of it. But um, we found from the internal numbers coming back and what members were saying to us that 90% of venues, 90% that are independent, that were member venues in Neva, are set to close in the next five months between here and now unless there is immediate assistance from the U.S. government. That is a staggering number. And, you know, we had the stimulus package that was initially passed, which was, you know, the, in my opinion, the personally speaking, kind of the bare minimum of what needed to be done. 
and you know, that was good and that you know there were some things that happened for for small businesses that were good um you know there there was a second round of funding for the small business assistance package here in the states and then that's kind of been it so there are a lot of venues that are fighting for their lives right now and you know it's it's something that's being echoed on a really large platform by a lot of artists i mean we've seen you know foo fighters sharing information about it billy eilish sharing information about it um you know queens of the stone age dinosaur jr jumped on board with it it's been pretty intense some of the people who have been you know, fighting the good fight on it because ultimately it's government lobbying like that it's what it is it's you know without you know the 500,000 plus signatures they've collected on it and you know a real effort to try to get you know congress to assist there you know the venue map is going to look radically different and it already does in some cases you know the great scott up in boston very sadly closed their doors a, a couple of weeks ago they uh, they announced that you know the coronavirus impact was too strong on them and they had to shut the doors and that's something that's going to be repeated. We haven't seen that type of thing in New York yet, but it's coming if things don't change because the profit margins are just that slim. If you're a venue trying to keep the, the doors open and make money when you're talking about the independent community and independent artists. So that's, that's a little bit of what we're facing. Yeah. So one of my questions about that, cause you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of venues who say they have like a five month timeline. Well, they employ a lot of people who are probably either fired or furloughed, you know, door people, uh, people who work concessions and ticketing and all this type of stuff. But the main cost I have to imagine is either rent or mortgages. Now, for most of these independent venues, do they own the building they're in or are they trying to build the venue in someone else's property? Um, you know, as uh, on a statistic basis, I can't necessarily account for that. I do know that the venues that do have some degree of self-ownership are in a way better position, but that's pretty uncommon. Um, right. You know, there there are venues in New York that, for example, that I know are on 10-year, 20-year leases, right. but that doesn't mean that they don't have rent to pay. Um, some of them have been able to pay in advance on that, and they were already good. Some others have been able to do, and and you know, there's there's been some pretty notable examples of this. Um, St. Vitus Bar here in uh, in Brooklyn, which is you yep. know, arguably the uh, the the most critical metal venue in the entirety of the United States for what their cultural impact is, and they also have a huge influence on on post punk culture and indie rock culture and goth culture here. Um, you know that that venue they did a uh, they they did a Kickstarter. Just to just to make sure that their staff was paid and that their costs were covered and that sort of thing, and they had a, a pretty modest goal in the Kickstarter, and they ended up exceeding it massively. They got over a hundred grand on Kickstarter, which wow. was amazing. But they're the happy exception. They yeah, are not gonna, the rule. I was going to say that's there's no way that's normal for most venues, you know. No, um, my, and, my, and, my, yeah, I'm I, I'm sorry. What well, my second thought too is that you know. To me, it seems like there's going to be a big demand from the big companies to come in and scoop all these guys up because they can't see another way out. So what does that mean for the long-term future of venues too? It, I mean, are there buyouts happening? Are these being flipped? I, you know, I think that's a reasonable question. And while I can't speak to you know, specifics on that because I'm just not on the inside of that enough to see what, what the drama potentially is, 
that's a fair thing. I will say that just about any company in the live space in the United States is feeling the impact to an extent that I don't think that the mindset is necessarily, oh, how do we flip these sweet venues that are coming open right now? I think the, the mindset is, how do we keep our staff paid? You know, we've seen that from, you know, we've seen, you know, Live Nation uh, had to, you know, uh, had to make some, some cuts, you know, uh, I, I know AEGs had to do some things like, you know, all of these really large organizations, you know, especially when you look at talent agents. I mean, when, when you look at talent agencies, I mean, Paradigm, you know, they, they made a lot of cuts really recently, you know, they're, and they're not the only ones. I mean, you know, I, I know that for a fact. There's a lot of them. And I don't have the full list in front of me here, so I don't need to single anyone out. But it's a very publicly visible problem. If you're in the live space in the United States right now, there's so little protection from exposure to you. And I'm not talking about exposure to coronavirus. I mean, that's a whole different thing altogether. I'm talking about exposure to the economic damage it's caused. And, you know, that's why that everybody keeps saying, you know, these places are the first to close and they'll be the last to open. And it's true. So have you seen any, you touched on a little bit there, but have you seen any venues pivot particularly well through this period to find ways to raise capital beyond uh, a, a crowdfunding campaign? Have there been any venues that have been able to enter the live streaming space? Has there been anything that has happened that might sit outside the norm, but give an example of the sort of things that might be a reality for the next six months for some of these places? Yeah. So I, I think that there are a couple of examples here. Um, and I, I don't think that most of them are, are doing great at it because when you're talking about when you're talking about venues that have a more general audience, like let's say that you're a venue in Colorado and you book a lot of jam bands and those jam bands come in every, you know, eight, you know, two nights out of the week and you do that for 40 weeks out of the year and then you do other stuff also. That's a pretty brutal thing to fight against. You know, jam is all about the live experience. So there's a certain amount of, of streaming that, you know, the question is how do you replicate that? There's also, you know, St. Vitus, to reference them again, they have a whole thing of Kickstarter reward tiers that they've been doing where, you know, you can get different you know, merch packages and that sort of thing. But they also started doing something called the Age of Quarantine, which is a riff on an old Cro-Mags record, the Age of Quarrel. And Age of Quarantine is just them finding different artists around, you know, their scene who would usually play at the bar and saying, we're going to sit down and do a video interview with you guys, you know, every night for the next few weeks while this thing plays out. And what they've been doing is pretty cool. Like they, they, uh, you know, they, they put a little pause on that this, this week out of respect for, you know, for, for, you know, justice for George Floyd and, and, and the Black Lives Matter movement here. But for the most part, they've been doing some pretty impressive things with that. And they have a couple of huge advantages in that respect because, you know, some of the people involved with them are, you know, members of, you know, the, the staff over at Revolver um, you know, here in the States, or there are people who have played in bands for a long time locally, and they're able to sit down and give really professional interviews with these people. So that's, but that's also such a niche audience. And both of those things, when you think about it, are kind of specific communities being catered to, you know, come on, everybody, you know, they, they have this incredible, um, wildly diverse, black LGBTQ scene, 
that they're able to serve in a very positive, powerful way. Um, and, you know, with St. Vitus, they've got this whole metal and, and hard rock and punk community that they're able to serve. But when you get to somebody who's a little more general, you know, like, you know, let, let's say like, you know, pianos and the Lurie side, for example, where is we, you know, I was at when the last show that I was at for the last three months happened, you know, they're not in the same position. You know, they've got to go, they've got to go fund me and they've got that, but it's just difficult to serve their communities in the same way because their communities are so diverse and therefore they have a lot more options. So I guess, mm. I guess our last question um, in this is, okay, we don't know when this ends. We don't know when venues start because like you mentioned, first out, last back in to, to business. Um, but let's fast forward to when venues are open, shows are allowed to happen again. What are we looking at that's going to be different? You know, I obviously I'm asking the question that nobody knows, but there are a few there are a few aspects. One of them is the venue owners have to be a lot more careful and the bands have to be more careful and follow protocols. But then as an attendee or a viewer, your experience might be a little bit different. Um, what are we looking at? And are there risks of venues not being as profitable as they were before? Or is the pent up demand something that will keep us going through? What, what do you think? There's a push pull on that. Um, one of the things that I, I know that there's been some effort to figure out is the best practices as a community for how to keep the, you know, how to open back up. You know, the process of opening back up is going to be really different from state to state. I mean, you know, Florida, for example, is just wide open right now. And they're like, huh, why do we have more coronavirus cases? Hmm. Let's think about that guys. But, <laughs> you know, Florida is an exception, you know, most, most of the time, you know, venues, even in states that are opening back up are going, uh, we know it's not the correct thing to open back up right now. So we're not mm -hmm. opening back up because it's one thing to serve people drinks at the bar, which is already, you know, indoors and probably going to end well. It's another thing to have people shoulder to shoulder, potentially not masked up, um, potentially having had no previous exposure to coronavirus and going, how do we deal with this? Is mm -hmm. it okay to be here? And it creates a, it creates an uneasy environment and, you know, yes, there is a minority of people in this country that, that think the coronavirus pandemic is all made up, which, hi, I got it. I can tell you it wasn't. But um, even without that, most people know better. And the polling has bored that out. That exists across party lines. You know, most people in the United States know it's real and know to take it seriously. So, you know, by nature, the nervousness about going to shows is going to be a little bit prevalent with some people for a while because they know that they know that it's real and they have to respect it. So that's kind of, there's kind of an in-between crowd. You know, there are some people who are like, and I was one of these at first where it's like, man, the minute we can be back at shows. Great. Let's go. Um, I don't care what orientation I am. Everybody's getting mouthed up right now. You know, like that, that was a lot of the mentality <laughs> when I think we first closed and that has since given way to, Oh yeah. Okay. So I didn't have coronavirus yet. And maybe I should be nervous about going to shows for a long time. And there will be people who, you know, change career paths because they have to, or, or people in the music industry who I think will change career paths because they're nervous about that. Mm -hmm. And I get that. So I think that, I think that that's kind of the tug of war right now. 
polling has you know there there are people in polls and and you know Live Nation has done some of this and you know we've been able to see some of it and some some other you know so, some other different you know organizations involved with all this have seen it. Um, there are some people who have expressed real nervousness about going to shows after this all opens back up. Um, but I think what's going to happen is you're going to have half capacity to quarter capacity shows for a little while. The half capacity shows in places that are pretty good on profit margins, the half capacity shows will do pretty well, well enough that it'll be better than having nothing on the calendar. Mm -hmm. The shows that have more limited capacity than that are going to be, I mean, you know, at that point, it's why even bother potentially in a lot of these venues. And I think that ultimately it's going to depend on how much service can come from the bar because there are some spaces like, and pianos actually is a good example of this where pianos, you know, the front section of it is all a bar space. And then you walk into the back room and that's the venue. So the bar space actually makes the majority of the money for the venue. And, you know, it, at events I've done there, you know, you you have to consider that it, it's an entire added cost if you were going to rent the bar space out for a big event rather than just add renting out the back room so you know it's a whole other level of things that you have to consider and that's the case with a lot of venues like that um so once you get past that you then have to think about okay well how do, how do i adjust to this how do i go through this process and how do i make sure that my guests feel safe how do i make sure the bands feel safe and that is going to be difficult for a lot of people to get a good pulse of for a while. Right. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just imagining in my head right now, you know, a venue uh, that's, you know, maybe a thousand cap. What are they going to do? Put like neon green tape X's six feet away from all through the well, floor, you know, like we've already, we've already been seeing some places open and do things like that or have seats on the dance floor and you have to sit on the seat. There was a photo uh -huh. coming from somewhere in the world. And I mean, and your reaction is, is, par is, is paramount to kind of the problem here is when we see what a gig looks like in this scenario where people are distanced and you, you, you have to use disposable cups and you've got to chuck it out after, you know, all these new ways that we have to um, have a live show. Um, people look at it and go, oh no, I don't want to do that. So we've gone from this kind of period of going like, I don't care what it looks like. I'm going to go to a show as Cody was saying to, oh, I'm going to wait till things are back to normal. And that's right. a problem because we don't know what that timeline looks like and it's a long one. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, I think that if we're starting to see some shows in the next three or four months, we're all going to be feeling pretty psyched <laughs> at this point. I think there will be some scattered shows by the end of summer, different places, but you know, I, I've had some artists that we work with coming to me and saying, Hey, I got this offer in August or this offer in October. What do you think? I'm like, well, I hope you're not buying onto that. And that's, and that's about the, uh, the, the conversation right now. Hmm. Yeah. And people can't travel. I mean, this is, you can open venues, but if people can't travel, if there's no freedom of movement, the bands themselves can't get to the show, especially when we're, you yeah. know, talking internationally, but even on a domestic yeah. level, you know, some borders are still closed. I mean, I actually don't know what the situation is right now in America. They seem to be very keen to just open everything up, but um, yeah, you know, Domestic travel is more open than you'd probably expect right now. And, and that's kind of a, and that's kind of what we've seen is that I, I know you can still go from like, you know, Washington to New York, for example, like you can still do that over plane, which is a, a cross country trip. 
Um, so, you know, it, it's definitely highly dependent um, on how closed down a state is particularly being at the moment. I think that what's going to happen is over the next two or three weeks, we're going to see how, you know, numbers do with new virus cases. And if they go up a lot and people start having to close again, it's going to really snarl what the options are for travel interstate. And that's a real possibility right now. We just don't know what we're going to see. So we're going to, we're going to wrap this up, but um, what can people do? What can people do to support Neva and, um, and their favorite local venue? Um, I, my, my suggestion on that, first of all, find your, uh, find whatever local venue you go to. Um, they will usually have a donation page on their, on their social media, usually their Instagram, sometimes their Facebook. I would highly suggest going to that. I would also say go to nevasoc.org. That's N-I-V-A-S-S-O-C.org. The hashtag is Save Our Stages. There is messaging to get the word out about this please share that with anybody that you humanly can because every single little bit around that helps right now. And, you know, there, there is real messaging that, that is happening that can help. Wow. So that's a lot to unpack. Uh, we've talked about quite a bit of things and um, it's awesome to have Cody McKinney here again. He's from Marauder and they're deeply involved with all the ins and outs of owning and running venues and they're even you know advocating on their behalf through all of this to try and secure funds or help them pivot and um it's really cool to hear what's going on in the inside but it's also it's really crazy just as you know a normal person who's a fan of going to shows and has been going to shows for a really long time to hear that in the midst of this there's still so much uncertainty uh, just even making out, making it out of this period, but then also into the future, what it's going to look like. There's an equal, if not greater amount of uncertainty. And it makes me feel kind of weird because, you know, I'm a fan and I would love to get involved and help, but it's hard right now because if, if it's not this topic and it's another topic, everyone needs help and everyone needs solutions mm. and pivots. And it's like, where do you start? You know? Yeah, that's the problem I think we're all facing um, in any anything that requires groups of people getting together and anything that requires travel is at a standstill right now. And even in places like Australia, which are starting to reopen and have next to no cases, um, there's still an unbelievable amount of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem in America and places that haven't shut down properly is that they've just elongated this problem. And because so much of the world is dependent on U.S. touring acts to um, headline their festivals and and play their venues, uh, venues in Europe, in in Canada, in Australia, they're all going to be struggling because there's only so far that domestic music will take a market, uh, and that in, that's included in America. Like as much as they think you know they're the center of the world musically, and in many ways, as Cody mentioned. They are the, uh, you know, fathers of, uh, of so many genres and, and so much music that, that, that we enjoy today. It's still a scene that is reliant on people getting on airplanes and traveling overseas. Mm -hmm. And uh, without the freedom of movement, nothing's going to be returning to normal. And as I started saying before, even if it does start to return to normal, what does that normal look like? And are people mm -hmm. even going to want to go? Right. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it is it is easier to be doom and gloom in the middle of something because we can't see the way out. I know that you know at some point in the future we'll we'll look back at this and remember how it felt and what we thought and compare reality to you know our mm. guesses and we'll probably be wrong in some regards, um, but in others, yeah, we, we don't we don't really know. And um, you know, as th- as digital things continue forward, it's getting harder and harder to fight for th- things that are in person, like mm. music and art. You know, it's hard because things get so saturated with social media and everything's free on YouTube. So this is, you know, it's a really interesting conversation to have because these industries were figuring out how to survive anyways. Um, Now with this bump in the road, it's really a rubber meets the road moment to these venues to figure out how they're going to exist or not, you know, because they need to be ready for any other significant change, whether it's a virus or something else maybe it's the rise of digital competition are they gonna well i think that's gonna i think they will take part in it i think the future of live music for at least the short term is going to be a combination of digital and physical i think any event that has um limited um capacity restrictions they're going to be live streaming that show and maybe there's a ticket maybe you can get a ticket for a live streamed show and you can watch it from anywhere in the world and you pay a set fee and you it's it's like you're there but you're watching it from home um or you've paid to be one of the few that are allowed in the venue in whatever capacity that looks like that's probably what we're going to look at but mm-hmm. whether venues are able to capitalize on that do they take a cut of the live streaming tickets um you know, these are the sorts of questions that I think we're all going to be asking over the coming months. Um, and as Cody um, has said, and, and as we've kind of gotten through this discussion to find out, no one really knows. And like you said, we could be completely wrong about all of this. And uh, I know three months ago, I was in New York uh and everything seemed like it was going to be fine. Mm-hmm. So uh, things changed very quickly and um, they will change quickly again and, and hopefully f- in a positive way this time. That's right. Well, as, uh, as Larry mentioned, we are going to be talking to somebody in the next episode who has had to go through the full quarantine process. And as somebody who hasn't had to do that, and hasn't got the virus, thankfully. Um, it's going to be really interesting to learn all about it uh, from start to finish. Or somebody who's done it, what they think about it, uh, how they felt, and that's going to be a trip. You know, getting off a plane and going straight into a box for two weeks. So <laughs> uh, it's almost the antithesis of travel. So we'll, we'll be talking about that next time. And uh, hope to hope to see you guys there. Hope you're enjoying unpacking this ridiculous time period we're in um you know looking back on this uh, this is almost serving as like a a time capsule if you will because we're going to be able to go back to this and just remember what it was like or you know people have questions about these things we'd be like hey remember the time we interviewed this person about it check it out so (laughs) it's going to be kind of cool um on, on that level but until then uh hope everybody's having a great week uh i hope everybody's staying as active as possible and staying healthy and also staying socially active because this week 
also happens to be the largest civil rights movement in history. Uh, <laughs> as if this year couldn't get any more crazy. Um, it just keeps going. So we'll see what's going on by next week and we'll catch you then. <laughs> yeah. What is it going to look like next week? <laughs> Dude, I don't know. Thanks. For, thanks, Cody. And thanks for uh, listening.